And we are back. Welcome to T-Berg on Air, where we shine a spotlight on the inspiring, fascinating, hard-working, and legendary people of the greater 14886 zip code. My name is Keith Hannon, and I'm your guide on this adventure, sharing the stories that are new to me, but cherished by many of you. Speaking of adventure, our guest for this episode is no stranger to adventure. As a matter of fact, her whole life has been one. Louise Aidy is the daughter of Norwegian immigrants, and next month she will celebrate 60 years living in Trumansburg. If you think that's an indication that Louise is settling into a life of quiet and relaxation, well, you don't know Louise. At 68, she is 15 years into leading kayak expeditions in Antarctica. How does a Trumansburg resident make a living paddling around penguins and humpback whales? Well, you're about to find out. But first, an acknowledgement of the local beverage keeping us company throughout the episode. My friend and neighbor David Breeden, the winemaker at Sheldrake Point Vineyards, supplied me with a bottle of this delicious Lucky Stone Red. The website says it's a table wine for any occasion. Well, a chat with Luis is as good an occasion as any other. So thank you, David. And if you haven't tasted the fruits of David's labor, get on over to Sheldrake Point and let his creations take a walk on your palate. But before you enjoy the wine, it's time to start enjoying our guest, Luis Aidy. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks very much, Keith. It's a pleasure to be here um, chatting with you. And um, yeah, I just, I love the idea of um, broadcasts and I love the idea of uh just sharing with the public the stuff that you know that we all get to do in our lives some people are interested some are not so much um and i just think that uh that it's a big world out there and it's just really fun to share with people so thanks for inviting me you're welcome yeah it is a big world and i think what's so unique about trumansburg and the greater trumansburg area is how many people are doing worldly things from this little this little village in this little region? Let's uh, let's talk about uh, your history a little bit here. Uh, kind of when you arrived here, and you know where uh, where you set up shop. Uh, thanks for asking. Um, well, so mom and dad came over from Norway after World War II. Dad was half Scottish and Nor- uh, half Norwegian, and mom was all Norwegian. And they met in Norway. And then after World War II, it was kind of, people were kind of broke in Norway, but more than anything, my dad really, really wanted to come to the U.S. to raise a family. So they had one kid already. Um, We moved from, I think he was two, and we moved to Trinidad, and I was born there. Um, So my brother was four, and I was, when I was born in Trinidad, then we moved to Toronto and into the U.S., and then my sister was born here. We ended up settling in Trumansburg in 1957, so we're first generation here, um, but not, um, you know, I mean, we've been here exactly 60 years in April, but um, we didn't... um, Happy anniversary. Oh, thanks very much. (laughs) And I just aged myself, of course. (laughs) It's okay. Some of my classmates are around still, and they'll get a chuckle out of that. So, um, uh, let's see. So... We settled here. Um, my parents chose this spot, this area, because it reminded them of home in Norway. Trumansburg is just such a picturesque little town with the gorges. We bought a house right on the gorge that goes down to Camp Barton. 
Um, that's Front Neck Gorge. And, um, and, and mom and dad both came from small villages. So they nestled right into the Presbyterian church. And um, then we just became, you know, part of the community, even though we hadn't been here for generations. But it's really funny. My parents always felt like um, uh, immigrants, you know, until we had been here about 20, 25 years. And then they really felt, I mean, they always felt the warmth and comfort of this town, but then they really felt like they were, you know, when new generations were coming up and new people were moving in, that's when they started to feel like old timers here. And that was really good for them. Um, so so, I, need, so I, I need to put in 25 years and I'm going to feel like a perfect fit. <laughs> that, was, that was according to my mom and dad who came from. <laughs> No, they could trace their lineage back like six generations, each one of them in the same village, you know, wow. so yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of different for them coming to the U.S. in that way, but they caught on and they loved the culture um, and they loved this village and, and they were just pretty well known in Truinsburg and um, they loved people and people loved them. So what, I think what were their names? Uh, Bill and Austri 80. So there's some people listening to this who will nod their heads and smile and say, yep, we knew, we knew Bill and Austria. We knew Mr. and Mrs. 80. So, what, um, what, what did your, your dad and or mom do for work while they were here? Um, well, dad was in the hotel business when they left Norway and went through Trinidad and Montreal um, and came to the U.S. And dad had a job at Statler uh, before it was turned into student-run management. And mom worked at the bank um, in Truinsburg for all those years, and she walked back and forth to the bank for work and back for lunch, and so she claimed that kept her healthy. She was teaching uh, senior citizen fitness until a year before she passed away at 85. So wow. there are a lot of little old ladies that know her. In the <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you're coming from Norway via all these all these other cities. What do you think it is? Uh, how did they even, you know, know about Trumansburg? Was it the, you know, they knew about Statler and your dad was kind of looking at that and knew Trumansburg was nearby? Yeah, that's that's kind of how it worked. Um, because I think, well, let's see, we were in Montreal and my mother had one aunt living in this country. So they, they brought us into the U.S. and we stayed with them for a year until we found our own place. Mm -hmm. And then for some reason, my dad got a job at Cornell and he was commuting. Um, uh, he had other jobs. He worked on the railroad. He was bartending nights. He had two or three jobs at one time. And then he finally found a good position with the hotel school. So he was commuting for a little bit and said, well, this is nuts. Let's get a house in the in the area they didn't want to live in Ithaca it was too citified for them so they were looking at the small communities outside and so my dad was spending weekends looking in at houses in all the different little villages and we, when he found Trumansburg village um, it just spoke to him in a way that you know that it was it was ruggedly beautiful it was close enough to, Corm to Cornell for the commute um, and he did a lot of uh, checking out, just walking up and down the street, stopping in the stores, stopping in the uh, churches to visit, you know, and he just liked what he saw. There was a total community here that he couldn't find. He didn't find anything like that in Dryden or Groton, uh, you know, or Newfield or any of the other places, Trumansburg. So I feel like we were exceptionally lucky to land here because it was more 
kind of cultural place at that time for a tiny village than some of the other villages. Um, my mom felt like, you know, having come from Norway, they had a cultural, uh, they had kind of their own cultural needs. And they found that they were meeting those needs here because already, like for instance, in high school, I was babysitting for Robert Moog's daughters. You know, and, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I mean, you know, so there was already there was already kind of this cultural thing happening in Trumansburg. You know, just interesting, cool people, and and they just felt really happy here. Um, it's funny though. My brother and sister both both moved far away from here pretty early on after high school. Um, I left but came back. Um, I love it here. Um, and probably will stay here forever. Um, so it's just, I, I think it's just amazing the number of interesting and cultural, cultured people we have here. They, another aspect that my parents looked at was the school system. And they found that the school system, just by asking around in the different communities and my dad asking his coworkers, and so, I mean, he looked for about a year before he found us the place we moved into. And um, the school system was very, very strong even then, back in the uh, uh, late 50s, early 60s. And they liked that. They wanted a good education for their kids. Uh, so, you know, so I think we were just really lucky. Everything was stacked in our favor. I'm curious, where did your dad bartend, do you know? Oh, he was bartending in Cobleskill when we were living there. So oh, okay. I thought it might, I would have. No, uh, actually, in the summertime, though, he was bartending at uh, Teganic Farms Inn. And oh, okay. my brother was there when he was, my older brother, who was in high school at the time, was working at there as a dishwasher. Then after he graduated and left, I took his position. Um, hmm. So, you know, we all kind of, that's how we spent our summers. Being a first generation immigrant family, uh, was that. Was that a unique thing to be in Trumansburg in in the early 50s? Yeah, it was very new, unique. Um, um, but I didn't pick up on it much until I was in high school when I realized that um, that my mom was still kind of trying to figure out the culture for her teenage kids because um, it was different in Norway. Um, so she was adjusting to that. We also happened to move in next door to a couple, when we left, we had a first, our house, our first house here was about a mile outside of the village on Frontenac Road, and we loved it there, but then my dad moved us, when I was in the ninth grade, my dad moved us up to Strawbridge Street, um, yeah. and we loved it there too, and it was a great house and a, a really outstanding neighborhood. Um, but right next door, we had um, an older couple living there who hated immigrants, um, and they wasted no time uh, swearing at my parents and saying really mean things to them. Um, they were the kind of people that he would go out in the daytime and <laughs> shoot the birds out of the trees with a twenty-two because he didn't like them pooping in the trees. And <laughs> This was your neighbor that did that? The next door neighbor, wow. and they were quite wealthy. They were quite wealthy people, um, and they just had a screw loose. And but they would swear at my parents and call us damn immigrants. Why don't you come back to where you came from? Um, that kind of thing, which really hurt my mom's feelings because she loved everybody, and she was just super sweet. 
um, my dad was also very kind. So this was alien to them to be treated uh, poorly by someone. Um, but they just kind of bit their tongues. And then um, <laughs> the best part was, and this is where karma kicks in, uh, after they passed away, the daughters sold their house to um, a couple who, he was from Pakistan and she was from New Jersey. And they brought all their Pakistani friends uh, over like they would sponsor them and help them find places to live in the U.S. Um, and he was, um, he had three businesses in Ithaca and they were the most loving, wonderful, fantastic neighbors you could ever wish for. So my parents' patience and their karma, I think, paid off. Your history ran so deep in Norway, and clearly your family was a well-known family. I mean, that must have been really, really difficult for your parents to make that decision to leave. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it was, it was probably harder on my mom because she had <laughs> she liked to say that her growing up, she had um, she had no friends outside of school because she had fifty two cousins who were all her best friends, <laughs> um, <laughs> and they were all really close. I mean, we have a photograph that goes back to when my mom was probably ten or something, and there is like twenty five or thirty people out in this big uh, field out in front of the small family house that was the center of their of their their little kind of enclave of family each family had their own little house but the main house was kind of in the center and they shared this big field and they're all out there and they're Sunday best I mean the photos from about 1925 or 30 something like that and they're all in their Sunday best long dresses you know the men have taken the jackets off and they've got their suspenders and they're all with a big scythe you're growing up uh, you're in high school, you get to babysit the Moog kids. And so what happens next? What comes after Trumansburg High School? Well, I have to say that um, I, I did go to nursing school, and I spent a little bit of time um, working as a nurse. But <clears throat> for the most part, my, my, I, I haven't had a career. Um, I've mostly had odd jobs and doing things that I love to do and stumbling upon the next opportunity and taking it and somehow always surviving. Um, so while it hasn't been um, an exemplary way to, or let's say conventional way to <laughs> get through life, um, it's been a really interesting and richly textured one. Um, so, so I've had a lot of, a lot of odd jobs, um, a lot of them to do with the outdoors um, and guiding, um, like, oh, let's see, managing a bicycle shop, um, a lot of kind of outdoor orientation, I think is how to sum it up, looking back on the last maybe 50 years. And now one of your jobs is kayak tours in Antarctica. How does somebody find their way into that? That's that's a real crazy question. I get that ask, I get that question all the time. And it's interesting because... People scratch their heads, and first of all, they have to, like, you can see them mentally trying to figure out where it even is. Like, oh, uh, <laughs> that's so cool. You know, you can see that kind of come across their face, and then, like, 
how do you get there? How does anybody even get there? So yeah, it's a pretty crazy story. I mean, my sister, who is four years younger than I am, um, she had graduated from Cornell with a degree as an outdoor educator, a conservation educator. And she had a couple of odd jobs right out of college um, and then, or university. And, and um, one of them was going into schools at the time there were gifted and talented programs that were state supported, state funded. And so she would go around to different schools and give talks about outdoor education um, you know, the uh, endangered species was one of the one of her big things, um, and then conservation efforts. And this was remember like 35 years ago, so it wasn't huge on the radar, but it was gaining momentum. So um, she this job wasn't uh, really fulfilling her enough and sustaining her enough. So she looked into jobs on board ecotourism or or on cruise ships where they took people into the wild areas um, and she could give lectures about things. So her very first job was uh, in the inland waterways called the intercoastal waterways of Alaska. So 35 years ago she was on a ship called the Clipper Adventurer, I think it was, or just Clipper, and uh, <laughs> she was ignited. She was absolutely, totally ignited. So she spent the next, oh, probably 15 years or so, 15 to 18 years doing that before I got a chance to go as a guest with her. Uh, by then she was working out of the Arctic, um, and that would be the Svalbard region, halfway between the north coast of Norway and the North Pole. And then also in, at the opposite pole, she was going to, down to the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, and so I went with her on an Antarctica trip. While I was on board uh, the ship, I was taking part in all of the things that were being offered and really, really enjoying it, getting to know the ship inside out. I got to know the captain. I got to know his chief mate, um, all of the officers in the bridge. I just made myself like known um, <laughs> and enjoying getting as much out of it as possible, going to every single lecture getting to know the people working uh, on the staff for my sister because she was the expedition leader. Um, and among our passengers, um, well, I thought that, I actually thought we were going to kind of get bored on the drink passage going back. So I thought, gee, why don't we have a talent show or a variety show? So we just happened to have um, on this ship a retired Broadway backstage producer who um, volunteered to take over the variety show for me. Aren't there and, one of those on every ship? Yeah, sure, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, what kind of coincidence was that? That was amazing. Um, and she was delightful. And she, and she had been born and raised in Manhattan, so she was, you know, she could talk to anybody about anything, and she could just run the show. I didn't have to worry about a thing, because I frankly didn't really know what I was doing. So we ended up with a really hot class show with costumes and, you know, and skits and humor and music. And I mean, the whole thing was just so much fun. It was hilarious. Um, I mean, I could go on and on. It was just so much fun. Um, and so anyway, so at the end of the trip, of course, I told my sister, this is amazing. I would 
give anything to come back and work here. I told my sister how much I loved, um, you know, every aspect of what I had observed, and I pretty much inhaled it and devoured it. Um, it was so wonderful. I mean, if I think about if I think about it um, for a moment, my parents both grew up on the ocean. Um, my dad was in the Norwegian Navy in a submarine during World War II. My mom's family, going way, way, way back, had rowed their boats across the fjord to market to take the eggs and the bread and to buy other stuff. Um, and, and so we grew up on the water. I mean, my brother was in the Coast Guard. You know, my older brother was in the Coast Guard. And then my sister, here she is having a life at sea. And it wasn't full time. It was, you know, there are seasons. Um, and then all of a sudden, there I was. It's like, of course, I would love being on the sea um, <laughs> and on a ship. It, was, it just felt natural. So, and also the hospitality aspect of it was really pleasing to me because as a nurse, I was used to taking care of people. So it was really, it all fit together. So when I said to my sister, I would really love to do this. I'd love to come back and work. And she said, yeah, but we're all naturalists here and you're not. So what would you do? And I said, I could be a kayak guide. Oh, no, no, no. Too much liability. We'll never, ever put kayaks on these ships. It's just too dangerous. So, so that was in February of the year. Then in June, I get a call from her saying, guess what? We've just put kayaks on and we need a kayak guide. So, um, so I was ready. Um, I had a mentor for my first trip. And then after that, I was on my own and I've been doing it ever since. Um, so ever since means that was 15 years ago. And so I've had 55 trips to Antarctica now. And I've taken over 1,300, and actually this year it was up to, brought me up to 1,400 people I've taken kayaking in Antarctica. So where in Antarctica does one kayak? Because when I think of what comes to mind for me, and I've never been there, probably wouldn't do a good job getting there because never really seemed to do well on boats on the ocean. <laughs> with regards to illness, <laughs> right, right. but uh, I just have this this image of uh, you know mostly ice, yeah, where you don't even see the waters and and I'm not a kayaking expert, but I know water is pretty essential part of the kayaking experience. So you know where do you go up there? How do you how do you find the how do you right. how do you find these places to kayak? Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of hypothetically take you out of your comfortable seat in your comfortable home, and put you on a plane and head you south. And in 28 hours, you're gonna end up in a city called Ushuaia, which is about the same size as Ithaca, and it's at the very foot of the Andes, right where the Andes marches down to the ocean at the southern tip of South America. Um, so you're going to stay overnight in a hotel for one night. The next day you're going to get on a ship. And in two and a half days or two and a quarter days after going across the Drake Passage, we're going to land you in at your first landing in the South Shetland Islands, which is a small archipelago of islands off the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula. So we're going to take you ashore for one or two experiences to see your first penguins, your first glaciers, your first icebergs, and your first trip in a little zodiac that seats about 10 or 11 other people. And there's a driver, and that little zodiac is going to take you ashore and then bring you back to the ship. 
then after we get you back in the ship, we're going to cross another body of water that takes maybe four hours or so, um, four to six hours, and then we'll get you to the peninsula. And then we're going to get into the inland waterways that are protected from the Drake Passage. So these waterways are going to be much calmer. Um, and you're going to be surrounded by mountains covered in ice, uh, covered in glacial ice, glaciers, as far as the eye can see. You could go to the highest peak and you would see ice and glacier clad mountains for about 150 miles um, wow. toward the South Pole. So the areas where we land um, are the same areas where the penguins come ashore for their breeding. So you're going to spend a lot of time at the edges of penguin colonies watching their behavior. Um, and if you're up a little ways, uh, you, could, you could be looking out and hear the blow of a whale and look down and see whales passing through. And these would be humpback whales or minke whales. And the kayakers, in the meantime, if you were a kayaker, we'd have gotten you into the Zodiac and taken you with the other kayakers around a corner or around a point. And then we would get you into the kayaks right there on the water, and we'd be going out kayaking together uh, alongside the, uh, the the lower of the glaciers or out into a bay uh, that's chock full of ice. And we'd be looking for icebergs out there, and we would be looking for more minke whales and humpback whales. We'd be looking for seals hauled out on the ice, snoozing off a of feed. Um, We'd be watching for the penguin groups that come out in, they always come out in groups for safety uh, because there's one notorious whale or, or a seal there that eats penguins. So for safety, you know, they'll be traveling in groups and they porpoise through the water. They're really spectacular. So, um, so we would be on the lookout for those guys. What kind of, uh, what kind of water temperatures am I, am I in right now in? <laughs> am I am I in choppy water? Is it is it pretty smooth? I just want to know, like, what are the what are the odds I'm coming out of this kayak? <laughs> well, um, the South Pole is quite a long distance inland, so we always call it Antarctica because that's the entire continent. Um, so, and we're on the Antarctic Peninsula. But to answer your question. Um, the water is about 29.8 degrees. You'll notice that that's below freezing. So why is that? Well, it's because the water is highly, highly salinated there. Um, the water is so salinated that the people who come down for diving um, have to use different weights than they're used to using because they're more buoyant than they could ever imagine that they could be. So I feel it. In the kayak, the way the kayak holds on the water, it's more buoyant than in fresh water, which is what I'm used to up here. So first of all, how that translates to people is it makes you safer because, the water, because your kayak is more buoyant. And yeah. I also feel it in the paddle. Like when I first get in the kayak and dip my paddle into the water the first few times, it's like, it's almost like there's resistance pushing the paddle out of the water. It's so buoyant. So that's why the water doesn't freeze until it's um, colder than 29 degrees, the water itself. So that means surface water starts freezing at 29.8. It sounds crazy. Um, so the air can be 32. 
you know, or the air can be 18 and it's not going to start freezing yet because the air temperature, the ambient temperature is going to be warmer because it's summer when we're there. So that's the opposite. It's this opposite side of the globe from where we are. So we're there during the austral summer, which is our winter up here. Okay, so anyway, so yeah, the water is, is really cold. Um, and the ice um, is actually melting in the water um, because the ice is cold. And so for the divers, what they find is that when they get right up close to an iceberg underwater, because there's meltwater coming off it constantly, they start sinking because they're in fresh water. And then if they pull back a foot or two, then they're back in the super buoyant saline water, and then they start floating again. So it's a strange phenomena. Um, also, um, we don't get too close to the glaciers because they're very dangerous. Um, and I also give all of my kayakers a one-hour orientation on board the ship before they even get near a kayak. So I put the fear of God in them as far as capsizing goes. And I teach them, here are the things that you can do to capsize. So don't do these things, okay? And one of them is making sudden movements and trying to turn your kayak using your body. Um, and also trying to uh, turn the kayak on its side. That can make you capsize if you don't know the technique for keeping a kayak upright, which really takes a little practice, um, you know, in warmer waters. Um, so I give them the orientation. I tell them things like, don't lean over in your kayak because that's going to cause you to capsize, but do sit upright. Do keep your hips flexible so the boat can move a little bit underneath you. Um, do, do the things, you know, keep the kayak going in a straight, consistent fashion. And you're probably going to stay upright. And, and I haven't actually had a capsize now in about four years with any of my people. So maybe even longer, maybe six years. So um, it's working, whatever it is we're doing. Um, do, you, do you keep one of those like no accidents in this factory signs up for however long you've gone without having a capsize? Oh. <laughs> you know, I need to do that. I need to do that. But we have an enormous, um, we have a multi-layered safety net. And the first, the first part of that safety net is that we're always, we always have a, a Zodiac following us uh, so that the driver, if we had a capsize, the driver would pull right up to the kayaker and just hoist them out of the water and take them back to the ship. And we would continue on kayaking. So that's our number one safety net. Another safety net is we don't go out in really rough conditions because that's just asking for trouble. Um, I do have a wind speed kind of cutoff for beginners. Um, you know, people who are who are, who've never done it before are going to be very, very uncomfortable in windy conditions. So, you know, I, I don't put people out in conditions where they're going to be really uncomfortable. Um, that being said... <coughs> snow coming down and rain, we don't consider that uncomfortable because we're dressed for the conditions. The key to kayaking in cold water conditions is to dress for immersion. So if you do fall into the water, you're dressed for those conditions. But we're not expecting you to stay in that water for more than five minutes before we get you out. And usually we're getting you out anywhere from two to three minutes after you've fallen in. But I always tell people, 
here's all the information, and you could die if you went in the water, but you're not going to capsize. So what's the worry? So, <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and it seems to be working. That's reassuring. Well. So, and out of 1,300 people kayaking, I have had six capsizes. So there you go. I'll take those percentages. <laughs> yep. So when, uh, when is your next trip? Well, I just got back about a week ago. Um, oh, okay. After a two-month uh, contract. It was supposed to be three, but I had a little knee issue. Um, I'm going to need surgery, so they sent me home. And um, um, my next contract starts November 3rd. So I will be fully healed and ready to go by November 3rd. And that is uh, with the same company. I've been with them. It'll be my 10th year with that company. Um, I, had, I was with another company for the first five years. Um, and I just really enjoy this company. They seem, to, they seem to appreciate me, and I really appreciate them. I appreciate the loyalty. The loyalty factor is huge for me. Uh, because there's a great deal of security when you know the ship, you know the people you're working with, you know the company, you know the quirks, and by far, not, not, there isn't one company that's perfect, um, but all of them are really, really good, and we all deliver a really top-notch product, I have to say, because I've been able to compare between the two companies, and over the years, I've been able to compare with the other companies as I've gotten to know them and as I've gotten to know uh, some of the staff with the other companies, and we're all really, really close in the delivery of the product and the product we, that we deliver. Um, so I, I think that, you know, if anybody's really interested in doing this, I wouldn't hesitate to give them my name, um, my contact information. You know, I'd re really, really be happy to set you up with uh, started. And... As, as it turns out, almost every single year I get a call or an email from someone that says, a friend of a friend told me to contact you. And then I end up going over to their house, having tea, bringing photos, you know, like bringing the computer loaded with photos, uh, friend me on Facebook, go to my blog, you know, and, and I'll help you get over whatever trepidation you have. And usually, I have to say, most of the time, it's how do I dress for Antarctica? How do I do this? And when it comes to the kayaking orientation, I always start with how do I dress for kayaking because it's the biggest mystery, I think. How am I going to protect myself from this, these conditions? Um, I, think so, I'm, I think I'd be most interested in how do I become embraced by the penguin colony? <laughs> You see well, all these. Oh you see God. all these penguin movies. You just you just want to kind of be a penguin. Yeah, it's true. I mean, and and the thing is, we never ever get enough of the penguins. They're hilarious, and they've got an amazing thing going on. And I have to say, if you really really want to get the best penguin exposure possible, go exactly now this time of year from mid February to mid March. Because the penguin chicks are almost adult size, and when you get on shore, it's almost attack of the penguins. They are so curious. <laughs> and the penguin chicks, they peck at your boots. If you sit still long enough, they'll climb up on your lap and go to sleep. I mean, it's crazy. It's insane. They're just all over you. 
And, um, and of course, we have guidelines about how far we have to stay away from the penguins. And we're strict about that, very, very strict. But if they come to you, just put your hands up and sit still and enjoy the experience. <laughs> Attack of the penguins. <laughs> I like that. It is. It's really amazing. So, Louise, how long, how, how much longer are you going to do kayak trips to the to <laughs> Antarctica? How long are you going to keep this going? Well, I have to say that I thought I'd be able to do it for about two or three years, and then they would replace me with somebody younger. Well, I'm 68, and if I can do this to age 70, that would be magical, and I'd be happy. I could, I could just like, okay, 70, 16 years doing it, I'm fine, you know. So I'm going to be 69 when I start my 15th year and my 10th year with this company, and those are all milestones, but damn, it would be so cool to do it to age 70. So we'll see what happens if I'm still bouncing around and – you know, jumping in and out of kayaks, I guess I'll get to do it. Well, we're cheering for you. Just take it easy on that knee. Yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> i got to put in one last plug here. Um, I started, um, I'm not just a kayak guide, but I started, um, gosh, oh, I think it was probably nine or ten years ago. It might have been just before I made the transition to the other company. Um, but I started giving the lectures about the early Antarctic explorers. So I've got a huge, huge interest, in, um, interest now in the history of Antarctic exploration. So it was uh, three years ago that I did my first play in Trumansburg, where I dressed the part of three different characters in the Sir Ernest Shackleton Endurance Expedition. And that was really, really fun. I give that lecture on the ship all the time. I also get to give the toast at his grave when we go to South Georgia because that's where the Englishman was buried. And, um, and it's a huge honor to give that toast. I mean, usually it's like Cambridge scholars in history who give this toast. <laughs> yeah. And here I am, this American woman, you know, like with no Cambridge you know, history behind me, you know, giving the, giving the uh, toast to the English countrymen, you know, and that's a kind of huge honor. It's a, it, it was daunting at first and still quite a privilege. Um, and I also gave, uh, I, I give lectures about a whole bunch of explorers. There's about a dozen of them that I talk about. And the era that I'm talking about, it's 1895 through 1912. So I'm keenly aware of polar exploration and what it took to do all of that, I mean, from having done all the research to give the lectures and then all the research to do the plays and to be accurate. So, um, so that's another aspect of this job that I really, really love. But I have to say, kayak guiding and the kayaking is amazing. The lecturing is really outstanding. But you know what the most fun part of this job is? And I think every one of the guides would agree. It's actually driving the Zodiacs. That sounds crazy, <laughs> but sometimes we take our passengers out for like a two-hour Zodiac cruise, and sometimes we're pounding, you know, we're like we're full throttle pounding over the waves, you know, and the swells, and it's so much fun, you know, and we're laughing and having a great time, and everybody's having a wonderful time, and here we are with icebergs surrounding us and glaciers, and, and here we are in these little boats running around, I mean... That's, I think that's the biggest perk of the job. 
And I think the other guides would agree. Yeah, that's when I'm curled up in the fetal position with a nice shade of green on my face. <laughs> People don't get seasick in the Zodiac, so get seasick on the big ship. You don't have to get seasick. And I can give you the, the goods on that, on how to avoid it. And it is so worth it to know exactly what to do. Well, I might have to take you up on that. For the, in the meantime, I'll probably just stay uh, focused on Cayuga Lake. <laughs> but, well, uh, I'll be glad to, Keith, I'll be glad to take you and your family out kayaking anytime. And we'll go out on a flat, calm, sunny day in the middle of July. And we'll have a wonderful time. Okay, I, I like that offer. That, that, that I can get behind right away, I think. Uh, <laughs> do you, when you do these lectures, uh, do you ever do them locally in Trumansburg or Greater Ithaca? Well, you know what? I, I have given the lectures in Trumansburg a lot, but I used up my goodwill at the Trumansburg Library. They don't want me back anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I did too many. I, out, I outlived my welcome, I guess. Um, so I haven't done it in Ithaca. I would love to find a venue in Ithaca. And I would love to do more lectures in Trumansburg. I love sharing all of this amazing stuff with people. Um, I love, I've got, <laughs> I don't take great photos myself, but the passengers share their photos, their best photos onto a guest laptop. And some of the staff will also share their photos. So I come home with USB sticks loaded with amazing photographs. And that's what I use in my slideshows. So every time I give a talk or a slideshow locally, it's all brand new slides. So I'm really happy if somebody would like to invite me uh, to speak. I'll be glad to do it. If you're listening and you want to do that, contact Louise. And one way you can do that is uh, finding her online presence. Because, Louise, you, you mentioned uh, a blog that you, you maintain. Yep. How can we find that blog? In what will we find there? You can find my blog at veslaoutside.blogspot.com. I'm going to spell it for you. It's V as in victory, E, S as in Sam, L, A. The, that's the word Vesla. And then outside, O-U-T-S-I-D-E. Vesla outside, one word, dot blogspot. Dot com and what you'll find there is if you scroll back page by page by page you're going to find it loaded with photographs um, and there are times when I do nothing but post photos and then other times when I do when I do kind of journal entries that are kind of like almost like reading newspaper articles about what it is we see and do some of the animals and the marine the marine mammals and the wildlife that we see and the nature of ice and all that kind of thing and to get to those pages you'll want to go to the bottom of the first page and you'll find the word older you'll find the two words older posts click on that and it's going to page back through the journal so the journal starts with the most recent page and then it'll go back in time for about 30 or 40 pages. And it goes back about seven years. So you can get a lot of information, a lot of background, a lot of ideas about how we do things there. So my ship isn't the only ship that goes to Antarctica. We're one of about 20 to 25 ships. And this industry has gotten so huge now that there are going to be 19 new ships 
going to Antarctica in the next two years. Some of the older ships will be mothballed. Some of them will be in place. So we're going to end up with probably about 40 ships going back and forth to Antarctica. But the beauty of it is that the way our stop-offs and landings on the various beaches and locations, the way that schedule takes place is that no two ships are in the same place at the same time. So you almost always have the feeling of being all alone there. And that's the way we keep it. That, that's how it's set up. Uh, so that you have the experience of being in absolute glacier heaven, glacier paradise, glacier wilderness, um, and you feel like you're all alone there. Um, and we feel strongly as naturalist staff that we're instilling in our passengers a desire to be ambassadors for the future protection of Antarctica. Because Antarctica doesn't belong to anyone, and it belongs to everyone. There's no nation that owns it. Various countries have claims on certain areas, but it's superfluous. Um, there are research stations all over the place down there. They're not crowded, but um, they, they tend to have claimed that area around them. But it doesn't mean that they own it. Nobody owns it. It's a, it's a combined ownership worldwide, um, but it has to be protected. We have to protect it from mining and drilling. Uh, we have to keep it pristine. It's the last pristine continent in the world, and still there are traces of pollution there, um, and the ice is melting. So that's troublesome, of course, um, and that's a whole new can of worms. But um, I do address some of that in my lectures, but I mostly talk about what we're going to see and do. On average, what will it cost someone to take this excursion? Uh, right now, the range is somewhere between seven to twelve thousand um, dollars. I, I can back up a little bit. It could be six thousand to twelve thousand um, dollars, and I highly recommend if you're going to do that. And that's in addition to the airfare to get down to the southern tip of South America. If you're going to, uh, if you're attracted to these kinds of trips um, and wanting to do it with us, I recommend taking the lowest price trip because it's going to put you in the lower part of the ship. The cabin is, the, they're probably the smallest cabins. And a lot of this is good because number one, you only spend sleeping time in the cabin. The rest of the time you're out in the ship, out and about, or going to shore. Um, also, the lower in the ship you are, the less the ship is moving. So it's more stable in the lowest part of the ship, so you're less likely to get seasick. So it's, it's actually a very smart thing to take the lowest price trip that's offered. Um, you can go as high as $20,000 on some of the big luxury ships, but um, you may end up with 200 passengers or 250, and you won't get nearly as many opportunities to go on land. So I highly recommend going with a smaller ship, the 100 to 120 passenger ships, um, and then, as I mentioned, taking the lower, the lower fare. Well, I think we can wrap up now. Thank you so much for, for sharing uh, your, your history and your work with us. I mean, it's really incredible you know i think uh, 
to to know what you're what you're doing and or you know kind of not, not just what you're doing but you know kind of how you how you found your way there and how you're still doing it at uh, 68 is impressive i mean i uh i i'm sore the next day after playing basketball at the local high school on sunday oh. morning so the fact that you're <laughs> you're driving speedboats in the in in high wave areas in, in antarctica at 68 is really uh it's, it's, it's really impressive and it's really uh, kind of inspiring. I hope people can realize that, um, you know, so you started doing this. So then, you know, if my math is correct, you started doing this kind of in your late fifties. So, yeah. um, you know, life is uh, kind of just beginning for a lot of you out there who think maybe, yeah. uh, maybe you're getting older, but you're, you're proving that that's not the case. Well, you know, actually, I mean, I would have been ski racing, all these years, I ski raced for 30 years, and it came to an abrupt stop that first year I went to Antarctica. So, I mean, you know, for for me, coming from Norwegian parents, that was just the norm. You know, just you didn't you didn't hang out inside. You got on your skis. You know, the second the snow was here, you got on your skis. If there was no snow, you were on your bicycle, or you were sailing, or you were rowing, or you know, or, or doing something on the water or swimming or outdoors in the woods playing, you know. So, I mean, I guess it's just I've been playing my whole life and I just haven't stopped yet. I guess that's kind of how it goes. So, you know, I mean, as I said, I would still be racing. I stopped racing 15 years ago, ski racing. In fact, that very first year that I went, um, I came home and I had a weekend of races at the Empire State Games in Lake Placid, you know, like a week later. So I came back with sea legs and I had I had five days to get my ski legs back and get rid of the jelly legs that, that I got, <laughs> you know. And, yeah. and that was kind of tricky because, um, you know, I wanted, I mean, you know, when you go to the Empire State Games, you've got to be at the top of your form, you know, and I had walked away from my form for a week. You know, and that was really tricky coming back. So, you know, so this is a way to keep playing in the outdoors. And I think that must be the Norwegian influence. Um, you know, just keep playing and just keep moving. Don't stop moving. That's the whole key. You know, it's really easy to get sedentary and it's so hard to break out of it when you do. It's really hard. Um, the, the knee is kind of forcing me to do that right now. And I, it's very, very frustrating. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you can keep moving, do it. Just keep moving. Keep your kids moving. Keep everybody moving. Keep Granny moving. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it takes. But, well, you know, thanks for your compliments. I mean, I, I love sharing this with people, and I hope I do get a chance to, um, to give a lecture again here, um, maybe do another play. Um, it's, all, it's all really good. It's fun just to share. So thank you for sharing. And I love what you do because you're sharing with the community, um, a community that's somewhat new to you, um, and you're sharing what you're learning. So I admire what you're doing. I think, and keep up the good work because I think you have a fantastic show. And <laughs> thank you. Experience, I think you're going to run into some wonderful, wonderful people. So good luck with all of that. Yeah, I guess this is how I like to play. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I like to play physically as well. I like to get out and, and do all that stuff. But uh, uh -huh. you know, I think it's I've I've at times been uh, accused of having an old soul. I think this is one of my uh, old soul kind of uh -huh. <laughs> passions, where it's kind of like you know, 
uh, it's funny because during the day, you know, my day job, I work so much in digital media, I'm online, you know, I'm, I'm utilizing the latest technology, but I see so many areas uh, as I get older where I, you know, I think we need to uh, at the same time slow down and, 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 and capture so much of what's around us and really be more conscious of what's around us in the moment. And that's kind of what inspired this. Um, and I'm also reminded that my grandfather was Norwegian and he uh, downhill skied and into his late seventies. So I think you're going to, you should pass kayak at 70 pretty easily. Yes. And, and yes. maybe, maybe even go for 75. So yeah, I think that's the thing, you know, you don't, you, you don't give in to yeah. how many candles are on the birthday cake. Yeah. You know, you just, uh, you keep going, you keep doing what you love and you've clearly found a passion and, um, glad, glad you're seeing it through. And, uh, you. it's just, uh, another, another really, uh, impressive uniqueness that, uh, you. you represent here in, in Trumansburg. Pretty oh. incredible to have, uh, have you in this little town and you're, uh, <laughs> spending all your time in Antarctica. It's, it's just great. You know, you don't, it's not a, not a typical story and that's what we're trying to celebrate. So, oh. um, thanks. Thanks. Thanks so much for sharing. Well, we'll be checking out your blog, and if anyone has, you know, uh, a few thousand dollars burning a hole in your pocket, see okay. Luis and uh, figure out how you can get down there and get attacked by the penguins, because that's exactly. really what I'd be in it for. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we'll get you down there. Thanks so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. You're so delightful, and I wish you luck in your future programs, too. So, oh. Thanks for the opportunity, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you. I try to tell people I'm delightful, and, and <laughs> not everyone believes me. So thank you for the thank you for the plug. <laughs> you are. You're delightful. <laughs> Don't let anybody tell you differently. All right, I well, won't. It's on re it's on record now. It's great. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you again, Luis. And if you have questions, comments, recommendations for this podcast, remember you can email us at tbergonair at gmail.com we also have the tbergonair facebook page so many ways to get in touch with us if you have an idea for a guest if you want to be a guest or you just have general feedback to help make the show a little bit better but until then tbergonair is now off air <laughs>